This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. We are trekking through the book of Hebrews, and it is so rich. It's like a gold mine that you can never get to the bottom of, except it's a mountain made of gold. It's just crazy. I'm loving going through this with you guys. We open God's word together for one reason, and one reason only, to elevate Jesus. Awesome, awesome. Welcome, guys. So I want to give you two quick stories from my childhood to explain justice and mercy. And the first story was me in PE playing basketball. And I was off at kind of like this own goal, being a loner. And one of my coaches was sitting near the goal. And he was very clear. He said, look, if that ball hits me, I'm going to whoop you. And this is back in the day when that was like, okay. And I was like, I'm not anywhere near this guy. And sure enough, lo and behold, as the fates would have it in God's providence, that ball landed, rolled across a desk, and hit him. And I received the rough end of a yellow wiffle ball bat with the end clipped off so it contorts to the butt cheeks. And mug stung. But what was absolutely true is I knew the consequence and followed through with my action so that I received exactly what was laid out for me. Justice. Now, fast forward a year, <coughs> I did not become less stupid, and I had created a constellation of spitballs on the ceiling tile over my head in class. It was beautiful. People were marveling. And once again, I was caught by the teacher and stood there knowing that I deserved probably several detentions for this, that my parents are going to hear about my constellation and it was going to go poorly. And the teacher gave me mercy and did not give me what I was owed. And so we have here contrasted justice and mercy, receiving exactly what you deserve and not receiving exactly what you deserve. As we're jumping in tonight, there has to be kind of a grasp on what God's holiness is. His holiness is that he is set apart from all sin. He is perfect. He is pure. Everything that is in rebellion against him is immediately annihilated by God's presence. He stands wrathfully, hatefully opposed to what is unholy. And part of God's holiness is his justice. That he, as the sovereign creator and ruler of the universe, lays out exactly what his expectations are, and anyone who violates those expectations will receive exactly the punishment that he laid out. So this takes us back to a story that we have tread through many times because of how profound it is, but it's the story of Adam and Eve. And maybe something that you haven't caught before is how the story concludes before Adam and Eve are ejected out of this paradise kind of place. So they are without sin. They are holy. They are just before a righteous God. God's very presence dwells with Adam and Eve. 
The sovereign God of the universe walks and talks with them, and they are truly human, without sin, perfect before their loving creator. And then they make a conscious choice to rebel. They wanted what they wanted more than what God had expected of them, had commanded them. He had laid out the ground rules, and they violated them, and they were going to receive perfect justice. What was the ground rule? I've given you one commandment. To break this commandment is immediate consequence of death. But you see, there's two layers to this. There is a physical death, but you physically die positioned in rebellion against a holy God of life. So there's a second layer to this death because you are dying in rebellion. And a death in rebellion is a death apart from God, and the place apart from God is what God has set up for the rebellious angels and Satan. And so the second death, not just to die a physical death, but to die a physical death apart in rebellion against God, is hell. And what we see God do is so beautiful at the end of Genesis chapter 3, is that he will carry out his just punishment. Adam and Eve will die. But he withholds the consequence for a time. And as a part of withholding it, they live. They live like 900 years. It's crazy. Back then, the atmosphere is different. Things were growing differently. They lived differently. They lived a long time until that punishment finally caught up with them. But God withheld his justice for a time out of his mercy. And what we see happen here, when they realize they sinned, something changed inside of them. And it said that they recognized for the first time that they were naked. And this is more than just without clothes. This is a spiritual shame, a spiritual aversion to the very presence of God. They were, they were cowering. And the best thing they could come up with was homemade clothes made out of fig leaves to make loincloths for themselves. And their man-made attempt at covering their shame wasn't good enough. And God, out of his grace, grace is whenever you receive a gift you don't deserve. So mercy is withholding a punishment we do deserve. Grace is a gift we don't deserve. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21 says that God made them clothes of animal skins and covered their nakedness. An animal died so that God could give them clothing that was worthy of himself, which would not be made by them. It had to be made by him and covered them. This animal was a substitute to cover them and cover their shame and their sin so that when God looked at them, God did not see their sin and shame. God looked at them and saw the covering he made for them. That's critical. Are you following me with that? When God looked at them, he did not see their sin and shame because God himself had covered them with animal skins. So God looked at them and saw the covering he provided for them. 
from the death of an animal. If you understand that, we're going places tonight. Now we have to fast forward a long way. We have talked about Moses recently, how he led the children of Israel out of Egypt. They were slaves set free, and he brings them to this mountain, and God gives them his, what's called, the law. That's the first five books of the Bible, the law that God delivered through Moses to them. And this law sets up a whole bunch of rules about how they can be, quote unquote, holy. How can they be set apart? And the reason he's doing this is because God himself has chosen this family, of all the families in the world, chosen this family for his presence to dwell among them and for them to dwell in the presence of God. But we've established something. God can't be with what is unholy. So God has to change their position for them to have God in their camp and for them to dwell in the presence of God. So he sets up a system. Remember, the consequence of sin is something has to die. Some, if a person sins, that person deserves death. One sin, that's it. Because a holy God can't be with what is unholy. And for us to sin and be in rebellion against him is to put ourselves opposed to, at war with, in rebellion, yet treason with the God of the universe. So for God to be with them, that would mean that everyone in the, in the whole nation has to die. You realize that? So God sets up a system out of his mercy that he is going to accept a spotless animal to die on the behalf of the individuals for their sin. Animal sacrifices. Substitution. This animal's blood would cover the sin and shame of those individuals who are sinners. And covered by this animal's death, blood, God in his mercy and grace would dwell with this people and they would receive the many blessings that come with God among them. Are you still with me? So we have a sinful people and God wants relationship with them to bring them into his presence and he establishes sacrificial system so the people can be with him. And there's a mediator between the people and God. God chooses Moses' brother, Aaron. And Aaron is going to be the priest who is going to kill the animal and present the animal before God on behalf of the people. He's the mediator. He stands before God. He represents all the people, just like our president represents our nation. He represented all the people and brought the animal of sacrifice for them. Are we still on the same page? But there's a problem. And I'll get to that in a minute. I don't want to skip parts of it. So the role of a high priest, Aaron and Aaron's descendants, is that they would oversee all the priests doing their duties of giving sacrifices and keeping all the holiness laws. 
They are to, the high priest discerns the will of God. God gives him this really special way, we can talk about it another time, to discern God's will for situations. And then they give offerings on behalf of the people. But we have to ask the question, why Aaron's descendants? Wasn't Aaron good enough? Couldn't Aaron give a sacrifice and it's done? What do we know about the nature of sin? Sin creeps in. None of us sin once and it's done. Sin is pervasive and consistent. And so Aaron, for the rest of his life, is giving sacrifices and standing as a representative before God for the people. And year after year, people are bringing sacrifices for their own sins. And all of the sacrifices are for the sins. Wait a minute for the unintentional sins that they committed. The sins that we com they committed by accident. They didn't even realize they committed them. So they would bring a sacrifice to cover those. And according to Numbers chapter 15, there was no sacrifice for intentional, willing sins. Anybody in here sin on purpose? Yeah, it's okay. We can, we're, we're all in this together. So what do they do? How can they, can they live in the presence of a holy God if they have no way of having their sins purified, covered by a substitute? If you keep reading in Numbers 16, there's one day a year, and it represents their new year. And this is where it gets beautiful. It was called the Day of Atonement. And this high priest, and only the high priest could do this. The high priest would come to the tabernacle or the temple. And first of all, he would have to go through a whole bathing regimen. And he would put on very special sacred clothes. And he would make a sacrifice of a bull for his own sins. Because even the high priest, the most holy guy, still is a sinner before God. So he would have to sacrifice a bull for his own sins, but then he would bring in two spotless goats. And they would cast lots. It's essentially like holy dice or something. They would cast lots to decide between this goat or this goat. And whichever one the lot landed on, he would sacrifice this goat for the sins of the nation. And he would take the blood of the goat and the blood of the bull for his own sin. And he would cross through the courts of the tabernacle and the temple. And he would step into the holy place where only the priests were allowed to be. And then he would come to a big curtain that was as thick as a phone book. And between the holy place and on the other side of the curtain was this, or on the other side of the room was this curtain and you have to press through this curtain and only one man, the high priest, one day a year for a very short time could enter the other side of the room. And inside of this room was the undiluted presence of God. It was called the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And this room housed very few things. It was the Ark of the Covenant and on top of the Ark of the Covenant, it was a gold box. But on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the lid, which was called the mercy seat. 
And it was a representation of the throne of God that God's presence dwelt above the mercy seat. And this priest would come in and he would bring a censer and it would fill up the room with smoke because everything has to be purified. The walls, the priest, everything has to be purified before God. And he brings in this incense and it clouds the entire room to purify the air itself. Because if the priest is unholy in any way, the very presence of God would kill him. They would wear bells on the bottom of their garment so that they could, the priests on the other side could hear that he was still alive in there. And he would bring the blood of the goat and the blood of the bull and he would sling it across the mercy seat so that his own sins would be represented before God as covered and the sins of the nation would be represented as covered, just like Adam and Eve. So that when God looks at the nation, he sees that through blood, they have been covered. They're holy. But it doesn't end there. He comes back out of the curtain and there's still the living goat. And he takes the goat and he places his hands on the goat and he pronounces the sins of the nation, the sins that people did on purpose, all the sin. And he lays his hands so that it represents that the sins of the nation are on this goat. And they take the goat out into the wilderness and they release it alive in the wilderness to never be seen again. So that on this day of atonement, two things have happened. That their sin has both been covered so they're represented as holy before God and their sin has been sent away into oblivion to never be counted against them again. But the day of atonement has to happen year after year after year after year because sin keeps creeping in. It's never been fully dealt with. So with that long backstory, an introduction. Let's turn our Bibles to the book of Hebrews, if you're not already there. It's in the back. If you get to James, you've gone too far. Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 14. The point of Hebrews is that Jesus is superior to every other way that God has revealed himself. God spoke through the prophets but Jesus is superior to the prophets. God spoke through angels, but, God, but Jesus is superior to the angels. God spoke through Moses, but Jesus is superior to Moses. And God has spoken and revealed his attributes through this priesthood. And Jesus is superior even to the high priesthood. And that's where we're picking up tonight. Chapter 4 Verse 14, our first point is that Jesus is our perfect representative. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our great high priest, Jesus, the son of God, has passed through the heavens. That's a direct echo of the high priest that would pass through that thick curtain into the Holy of Holies. Jesus has ascended. He's gone to the throne of God on our behalf representing us. 
He is our great high priest. And our author says that because Jesus has done this for us, he's gone into the Holy of Holies, he's passed through the heavens to God, we must hold fast to our confession. And it says that he, that he sympathizes in our weakness in verse 15. And it's because our weakness is a threat to our confession. Whenever we're pressed with persecution, our weakness tempts us to give up, to deny Christ, to give in to our old sin. Whenever we're pressed with temptation, our weakness tempts us to give up and go back and give up. And when we're tempted with complacency, we're pressed by our weakness to quit. But Jesus is not unable to sympathize with us. He's experienced persecution. He's experienced temptation. He's experienced every human emotion, every pressure that we've felt. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. This is our key verse tonight, that Jesus is our high priest on our behalf. And there are big implications because if Jesus is our high priest, not just some descendant of Aaron, but if Jesus is our high priest, it changes everything. This is huge because a man who is sinful bringing a lamb that is an animal doesn't suffice to save us from our sins once and for all. But if Jesus is our high priest who stands righteous, holy, perfect, just before God and who is a man who dies as the lamb, our perfect sacrifice, then it's a once for all sacrifice for us. And he comes before the throne of grace. This represents the Ark of the Covenant that the high priest would step up in front of. And his mercy covers our sin and his grace empowers us to do those things that we can't. Because, think about this, Stay with me, Luke. Because the high priest can only go before the presence of God. He's the only one. Jesus is our high priest and only he is worthy to go into the presence of God. This brings to full force the beauty that we are, as Ephesians 1 says, in him. That just like Noah and his family were in the ark and passed through the floods to salvation, just like Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17 prayed, let them be in me as I am in them. Because we take part in Christ, we can go with confidence into the holy of holies into the presence of God. And when he looks at us, he doesn't just see animal skins. And he doesn't just see the blood of an animal, of a goat. 
When we step into the presence of God, he sees the righteousness of his beloved son, our high priest, Jesus is our perfect representative. And two, the old human high priest, he served a purpose, but he was ultimately insufficient. Chapter five, verse one. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Every high priest, there's two qualifications right up front. The high priest is human. He had to be a man. If he's going to represent people, he must be human. And two, he has to have compassion on people. He has to relate to them. He has to understand where they're coming from to be a good represent, representative of us. But as it says in verse three, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for the people. Every man who has ever been a high priest has this huge limitation. He's not just human, but he's also marked with sin. Every descendant of Adam and Eve is a sinner themselves. And so he had to offer sacrifices even for himself. So we have a big problem. There's no high priest that's ever been perfect, that's ever been a perfect representative of, of us before a holy God. And God doesn't mess around with holiness. So here's kind of an interesting question. Are we genuine before God? Or do we try to cover up? Do we put on the, the Christian mask in front of other people when really our hearts are still in service only to ourselves? Do we put on the front? Maybe in your e-groups you can talk about what are some indicators of a masked Christian? No, just washing the outside doesn't deal with an internal sickness. Only Christ, only our perfect high priest deals with our sin in our hearts. Hebrews 5.4 continues. It says that no, none of these people, none of these descendants of Aaron takes the honor for himself. They have to be called by God as Aaron was. And here's our third qualification. They have to be called by God. There isn't like an Israelite kid that can grow up wanting to be a high priest someday. They have to be born in the tribe of Aaron to a certain family. And this is passed on by God himself. So these are human high priests. But Jesus, our third point is that Jesus is superior to this priesthood. Verse five, so also Christ didn't exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I've begotten you. You see, a human priest is appointed by genealogy, but Jesus is appointed not because he's a son, a descendant of Aaron, but because he is a very son of God. He is superior to any descendant of Aaron. He is 
begotten of God, as it says in Psalm 2-7. And begotten doesn't mean that he was had a beginning point, that he didn't exist and God created him or birthed him or something weird. Begotten is talking about how Jesus became incarnate, that the God, the Son of all eternity, was born through a human woman, Mary. And it also speaks to his being resurrected, that he was the firstborn from the dead. Firstborn meaning that those who follow Jesus will also be resurrected from the dead. That's what it means that Jesus is begotten. And then it says in another place, in verse 6, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we're going to discuss this in future weeks a lot more than tonight. But Jesus' priesthood is also superior to the Aaron family because he's not just from the Aaron family. He's of a priesthood of a different sort. And I'll give you a snippet. Melchizedek is this guy from the Old Testament who is a high priest of God, but he was also a king. The kings of Israel were all descendants of David. The high priests of Israel were all descendants of Aaron, two entirely different families. But Jesus is both. We'll talk about that more in a future week. Verse 7, In the days of his flesh, when Jesus was in flesh, when he was on earth, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him, to God, who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus was flesh and blood just like us. And he was the divine son of God, the sinless, true man. He shared all of our emotions and he cried out to the father. But his cry wasn't that God would save him from death, but save him through death. Jesus didn't pray to avoid it, but to be saved out of it. And this is a beautiful callback. Oh man, let's just, Take a minute, since we haven't turned very much. Let's go back to Isaiah 53. This is written 600 years before Jesus was born. If you found Psalms and Proverbs, cut your Bible in the middle. If you find Psalms and Proverbs, just keep going right a little bit and you'll hit Isaiah. Isaiah 53, and this is written of a coming one, a Messiah. Isaiah 53, we're going to jump to verse 8 and read three verses. And if you take the time to read this, it is so spot on to who Jesus is. It's fabulous. But we're going to start in verse 8. Jesus didn't pray to avoid death but it's to be saved out of it. And this is the Old Testament support. Verse eight, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living. What does that mean? What does it mean when you're cut off from the land of the living? You're dead. Stricken for the transgression, for the sin of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. That came true. Jesus was buried in a rich man's grave. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He is cut off from the land of living, and yet he'll see 
his offspring. His days will be prolonged. Who are Jesus' offspring? Not physical offspring. It's us. It's his people. It's his spiritual children. And then go left to Psalms. Let's look at Psalm 16 together. This one is quoted twice in the New Testament discussing Jesus' resurrection. This is also oh, just a beautiful psalm to read, talking about this Messiah to come. And this is a thousand years before Jesus. Psalm 16, we're going to start in verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Some of your Bibles may say hell. Or let your, let your Holy One see corruption. So Jesus will die, but God the Father will not leave him there. He will be resurrected. So jumping back to Hebrews, we have this beautiful verse about Jesus' resurrection. Verse 7, with a loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, which God did, and he was heard because of his reverence, because of who Jesus was, because of his holy fear for God, because of his identity, God said yes to his prayer. Let's keep going. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Again, we'll talk more about that later. So there's two things here I want to point it out before we close, and that's that Jesus learned obedience. In the beginning of verse 9, he was made perfect. What does this mean? Does this mean that God was less obedient and became more obedient? Does this mean that God was less perfect? and became perfect. So I want to unpack those briefly for you. We've already established that Jesus was sinless. You can look at Hebrews 7.26 for that. It's throughout the New Testament. Jesus was entirely perfect, holy, and pure, which made him our spotless sacrifice. But as a child, Jesus lacked the experience of natural human life. If he's going to represent us to the Father as a perfect representation of humanity, who can sympathize for us in our weakness, in our temptation, in our emotions, in the struggles and the pressures, then he has to experience temptations and struggles and pressures in every emotion. And as a child, he didn't have that yet. He grew in obedience to the Father having been obedient to the Father in every struggle, in every temptation, in every pressure, so that he could be made a perfect representative of us to the Father. Did that make sense? Anyone, if you're still confused, ask your e-group leader, because they understood everything perfectly. Jesus was brought to perfection, meaning that he was brought to the goal of being our perfectly sympathizing high priest. He walked in our shoes and he reached a point of completeness when he experienced every temptation, every human physical weakness, death that every human experiences. And he became our perfect high priest. And because of what he did, 
we have the opportunity for eternal salvation. Not momentary salvation, not salvation today, eternal salvation. And then it gives us this challenge. In verse nine, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus isn't just calling for repentance of sin. He isn't just calling us to believe that he died and rose again. He's calling us to obey him, that he is our Lord, our master. He becomes the king of our lives. So how is Jesus superior to the Levitical high priesthood? Where the high priest oversaw all the other priests, Jesus oversees everyone and everything. Where the high priest discerned the will of God for situations, Jesus is God's word and is God's will. Where the high priest gave offerings on behalf of the people again and again and again, Jesus gave himself as a perfect offering once and for all time. And I'll give you one more cool snippet. Remember justice? It's laid out. Justice was in Israel more rich than in any of the surrounding nations. The surrounding nations gave tons of room for vengeance and anger, all kinds of wild emotions. But Israel's laws demanded justice. If you took out someone's eye, then you lost an eye. One for one. Perfect equality. If you killed someone, you would be put to death. A life for a life. Perfect justice. Now follow me on this. Just like God brought mercy to perfect justice with Adam and Eve, just like he brings mercy through animal sacrifices. He also set up these cities. There were several of them, and they were called cities of refuge. Now, if you killed someone by accident, you still deserve to die, a life for a life. The family has every right to take revenge and kill you. They were called vengeance of blood. God appointed these cities to be places of safety. That if you killed someone by accident, you could run and escape to one of these cities and the city itself would protect you until you had a fair trial. And if in this trial it was recognized as an accident, you could stay in the city the rest of your life in safety. And if it wasn't an accident, then you were turned over for justice. But you had to stay in the city. If you left the confines of the city's land, that family could get you and they were well within their rights. Stay with me. Are you still following me? This is justice. There is one caveat. Upon the death of the high priest, everyone living in a city of refuge that couldn't leave was now set free legally with their record erased, and that family no longer had the right to execute justice. Totally unrelated in my mind. But upon the death of the high priest, the order is given out, and everyone who is hiding out for safety is now free. Justice is the wrath of God against us for hell. And yet, upon the time that our high priest died, we are set free and given mercy from justice. That is the role of a high priest, and that is the role of our perfect high priest.
there was a little boy who once spent a very long time building a boat. And he had a natural talent. And with the paint and the construction, it was a gorgeous boat. And he had it on a string and he was sailing it. And at some point the string broke and the boat turned and by the wind headed out away from him. And there was nothing he could do. Now, fast forward some weeks and the little boy is passing a toy shop and he sees out of the corner of his eye his boat on display. Somehow the shopkeeper had obtained this thing and was now had it up for sale. And so the kid goes in and says, that's my boat. I built it. And the shopkeeper says, I'm sorry, I have no evidence of that. You're going to have to pay for it like anybody else. So the boy goes home and he does chores and he works and he works and he raises enough money to go back in and pay the shopkeeper to redeem his boat. And as he's taking the boat out of the shop, he speaks to the shopkeeper and he says, I made it and now I've purchased it back. And that's what Jesus did for us as our high priest. He was our creator and we rebelled against him and with his own blood, he purchased us back. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are with us tonight. I thank you for a long, strange series of Old Testament purity laws that are all looking forward to our perfect high priest. Thank you, Lord, that we get to live on this side so that we get to see the fulfillment of all those laws. Lord, if there's anyone in here, if there's anyone in here who is still serving themselves, who still has a corrupt heart uncovered by your blood, Lord, I pray that you'll bring conviction to their lives, that they'll repent of their sin, that they'll put their faith that Jesus died for them, that they'll serve you, and that when you look at them, you no longer see sin and shame. You see the perfection of your beloved son. Lord, lead the eager leaders, lead their conversation. Lord, I pray that you would bring conviction in every student tonight to engage, to stay on task, and to unpack this further. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus.